Amen. Thank you, Christine. Good morning, Redemption. My name is Warren. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you as we are continuing our series called We Want a King. And so um, I remember back in 2017, I was just kind of like uh, chilling on Twitter, just scrolling the timeline. And, you know, I was scrolling, I was scrolling, and then all of a sudden, a picture of this sandwich came up. Look at this. And so, and so uh, some of you guys are familiar. Um, and so I, I saw that. I was like, why am I seeing this? What is, what's going on? Like, what, why is this popping up over and over? And so I dug into it a little bit, um, and I saw it was attached or related to this event that was called FIRE, right? And the way that FIRE was spelt, there was a Y in there. So I was like, I know this is our generation doing something ridiculous. <laughs> And so, um, yeah, so I clicked into it, and apparently it was, it, it, there was this festival. It was called the Fire Festival. It was started by this dude named Billy McFarlane. He had a bunch of investors that were just pouring millions and millions of dollars into making this amazing, like, dream paradise vacation weekend where there were going to be villas and top-notch chefs, and uh, it was just going to be like an awesome, awesome concert with all the A-list celebrities there. Ja Rule was a part of his team. And that's what's up, Ja was there. Um, and, and it was supposed to be this amazing weekend, right? And so all the kind of social media influencer types, um, you know, they were kind of just pouring thousands, thousands and thousands of dollars into making sure that they made it to this event. You had to be seen here. This was going to be the event of the year. And then the day came. Day came, right? And when all those people arrived on that paradise island, they encountered anything but paradise, Right. Instead of the beautiful villas that were supposed to be there, there were like basically like FEMA disaster tent sort of structures. Instead of like uh, the finest dining, the finest food, there was like this, which looks like what I was fed in elementary school. <laughs> Growing up in the Bronx was really hard. Um, and it was just a horrible, horrible experience. And I just remember like all the pictures and how there were like these pictures coming up of like, you know, the, the people running from the rain and like trying to get tickets back to the States. And I remember the general sense of the time was like, meh, <laughs> you know, Every, it was kind of received with like a laugh as we kind of all looked at them and said, you know what? They kind of got what they deserved. <laughs> right. Those influencer types who have no talent and somehow are famous <laughs> finally got what they had come into you know, we often feel like that, right? We love a good crash and burn story, right? We love it, right? You look at all the documentaries that are coming out right now, all the Theranos and Anna, we love this stuff. And I think somewhere in that, maybe subconsciously, when we look at a situation like that, we're like, you know what? Those prideful fools, good for them. They had what was coming to them. Thank God I'm not like those people. Right? We are easily able to feel some superiority there. And as we point out the prideful people, what does it say about us? Right? Pride is tricky like that. It's easy to see its root out in society, but if we're honest, it's in the soil of our own backyards as well, right? By pride, it affects how we present ourselves. It affects how we interact with people, especially with people we don't agree with. Right? You can kind of even say, you can make the point that a lot of just the division and things we see in our country today are a lot of pride influencing it, right? 
I saw a meme once that said, like, when it comes to arguments, people are like, I'm not always right. When I am, it's usually all the time, right? Basically, where things have turned. And I know in the church, we're not immune to this either, right? We've had the documentaries and the podcasts come up of prideful leaders. And one of the things those documentaries have asked is like, well, how did they get there? Right? A lot of times it's churches or ministry groups putting prideful people in their own image and making them leaders. And so this is a problem we know exists in society. We know it's out there. But as believers, what we always want to be, we always want to do is when we see a problem out there, we want to make sure it's cleaned up in here first. Amen? And so today, that's where we're going. We're going to be talking about pride. We're going to be talking about how we've made a king of ourselves, of our egos, of our prides. But my hope today is that you will see that you need a better king than that. And so this Sin, uh, the, the, this, this idea of pride, it's in me, it's in you. And as we dive into 1 Samuel today, we're going to see how it shows itself within the life of Saul. You guys ready? Yeah. All right, let's pray first. God, we thank you for this morning, this opportunity once again to be gathered up as your people, to hear from your word, God, and to be shaped and formed more and more into the image of your son. Open our eyes to see you. Open our ears to receive your word. God, open our hearts, God, to be changed, to be transformed, God, that we may not leave the same way we walked in today. We love you, God, in your name. Amen. So we're going to be starting out in 1 Samuel 13, 8 through 14. We have a lot of scripture to cover today, and so um, let's get going. And so uh, 1 Samuel 13, 8 through 14, it says this, he, he being Saul, waited seven days the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. And so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. And so today we're going to be, last week we looked at Saul's high points, right? His successes. Today we're going to be talking about his failures, right? We're going to be in some of the lowlights, Saul's leadership. And what we'll see today is that pride is a big factor in this. Pride is a big factor in what will lead to Saul ultimately losing control or losing his place as king over Israel. And the first way we see pride manifest itself is through Saul's impatience. Pride is impatient. Pride leads to impatience towards God and his timing. And so where we are in the narrative, um, 1 Samuel, Saul, and the army, they just defeated one of their biggest enemies, right? The Ammonites with Nahash, who was weird, want to take their eyes out and everything. They got past that. And now they're up against their next big enemy, the Philistines. 
And they are at a complete disadvantage in every single way, physically imaginable, any way you can measure it. And so they're not feeling themselves. They're not feeling great right now. And they know that, the, again, Philistines, big, bad, that this army come in. What, what, chapter thir- uh, what this chapter actually tells us is that the people are running every single which way, right? They're like, that's a no for me, dog. I'm not fighting them, right? It's like if, you, if, a, if a rodent rolled up right now, I'll be out. Like, it's like that. So they're running. They're hiding in caves. They're running across rivers. They're going every single way. And Saul is kind of, you could just imagine him standing there. Right, looking around, seeing all the confusion, all the panic happening all around him. And he knows that Samuel, the prophet, had given him this instruction of, hey, before, like, I'm going to come. I will offer the burnt offering. I will offer the sacrifice, and we'll get God's favor, and we'll go. Right, but Saul, because of the circumstances, because it feels like the walls are just closing in all around him, he doesn't wait for Samuel. He says, all right. Bring it here. I'll do it myself. And just as he does that, guess who shows up? Samuel shows up and he's like, what, what are you doing? Right? And Saul's like a little kid of sorts. It's like when you, a little kid, when your children, they know they've done wrong. They try to beat you to it. Like, oh, hey, how you doing? And Samuel's like, you know, and Saul comes and he gives all of these excuses as to why he did what he did. He's like, you saw the army, you know the armies are coming. You see the people panicking. You see what's happening all around me. I just did what was practical. But that's not what God was asking for in that moment. And you may ask yourself, well, why was this so important? Like, why did Saul have to wait for Samuel? And the easy answer is because Samuel told Saul to wait for him. That God spoke to Samuel and said, wait for me. I think oftentimes you're like always looking for nuance. And sometimes it's as easy as just following what God said to do. And so Saul, because of the circumstances, because of everything that was happening around him, he said, I just got to, I got to take it in my own hands. God, you're taking too long and I know better here. You see, his impatience led to an impulsive action, a disobedient action made in impatience and impulsivity. You know, I remember it, it kind of brings back a memory of uh, when I first moved here to Arizona and um, I had a group of friends, it was like six of my boys, and we were like, all right, like we can move into a house together and save a, a ton on rent because we were all living in separate places like that and, and stuff. And so we, we decided, we picked the house, was here in Tempe and everything, and the rent was like $1,500 for a five-bedroom house. That's crazy. That's what it was. Um, uh, I, I wish I would have like bought that house, you know. Anyway, uh, so we, we were moving it. You know, we were moving it. We were excited about it. We were like, "Oh man, this is gonna be so awesome!" And then, you know, we signed the lease, getting ready, thinking about all all that's gonna happen in the house and how awesome it's gonna be to pay like three hundred bucks. And like day before, one of my friends, he, he's talking to us. He was like talking just casually in conversation. He was like, "Yeah, and you know, I quit my job, right?" And we were like, come again? He was like, oh, yeah, I quit my job. We were like, oh, okay, well, what are you going to be doing next? And he was like, oh, I'm not doing anything. And so we were like, that's interesting. It's an interesting dilemma you have there. And thereby we do too. Right, but basically what had happened is his boss was just kind of being mean to him. It wasn't like any sort of abusive situation like that. It's like, the, the boss, his boss probably spoke to him before she had her coffee or something and, and, and like just challenged him in ways that he was just uncomfortable with. 
right? And in the moment, the thing that like, really got to us is he was like, well, God told me to do this. And we were like, that's like dropping like a draw four in Uno. It's like, all right, what can we do? Just got to pick it up. Nothing to do there. Right, and we were like, hey, we know God wants you to find your vocational sweet spot and all the things Jim Mullen's always talking about. Like, that's awesome, right? But also God cares about the lease you signed. God cares about the promise that you made, right? And this has nothing to do with any of that. It just has something to do with the fact that you were, you were a little hurt. You made this impulsive decision. And that's what pride always does. It always leads us to try to trust in our timing versus God's timing. We feel like we just have to move when we feel like God has taken too long. And so my question for you today, right, as we examine pride, as we examine how it shows up in our hearts, is where in your life do you feel like God has been late? Where in your life do you feel like God has been late? I think this often shows itself in a number of areas. I know one area that comes to mind, right? And I experienced this too when it came to dating, when it came to finding a spouse, right? Sometimes you could feel when you're in that mode, you're looking around and seeing people get married and you've attended weddings and you're like, hey, God, when is my turn coming? This is a good thing that you desire, but it can feel so hard. It can feel so lonely as you're going through it all. And what I've seen happen in that is people come and they go, you know what? I've tried dating in church. I attended all the things here. I did the online dating. I, I've been unable to find right, a Christian spouse or a Christian person that I could potentially be with. So you know what? Forget it. Forget it. I'm just going to go and date. And you know what? I'm just going to totally forget about this core part of who I am and look for whoever comes. And what I want you to hear today, if that's you, don't settle. Wait. God sees you. We see you. We value you. And you can trust that the God you serve, he hasn't lost control of your circumstances. He hasn't lost control of your life. Keep your eyes on him. We as a community want to make sure that you feel seen and supported and loved here. All right, for some of you, it's not that. For some of you, it may just be generally the comparison game. Right? We often go on our social media sites or even just in conversations and we hear what people are doing and we're like, well, am I supposed to be there? Like, they're the same age as me, and they have this or they have that. Should I be doing that? And what happens in that very often is we play the comparison game. We start to measure our value based on someone else versus remembering that we are known and loved by God, rooting our identity completely somewhere else. And what happens there is what do we do? We hop from job to job, friend group to friend group, city to city saying, I just got to do whatever it takes to get me to this place where ultimately I'm going to be happier. The grass is always greener somewhere else and never under your feet. If that's you today, what I want you to hear is you don't need to rush. You need to wait on God. Wait on God. Where God has you right now, today, is no mistake. 
Wait on God. He hasn't overlooked you while he's caring for everybody else. The truth of the matter is this. We all need to get better at waiting on God's timing. We've learned to live in a hurry, do everything in a rush. We've come to believe the lie that for growth to happen, it has to happen quick, has to happen overnight. But honestly, that's usually not how things grow, right? It takes time. And what we have to remember, it's not about arriving somewhere and being a perfect product. It's our God has taken us through a process, right? The process is more even important than where you ultimately be, where you ultimately end up. Because you know what? The truth of the matter is this. If God gave you everything you want tomorrow, what kind of person would you be? That's right. Right, what we have to remember when it comes to timing, right, and the concept of time is that we're only thinking moment to moment very much. But we can surrender that to to, to God who sees everything from the vantage point of eternity. And so it's his timing we want, not our own. Church, are we willing to trade our timelines for God's timeline? Are you willing to say, God, your timing is perfect, and even what may seem like a delay is no delay because you got me? And that is the truth. He's got you. He's taking you somewhere. But pride leads to impatience, makes a wreck of things. You do it. Saul did it. If only we had a humble king who could wait on God's timing. Let's continue and see how else pride manifests itself in the life of Saul. We're going to jump to chapter 14, and we're going to be in verses 24 through 30. It says this, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, curse be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So the second effect of pride in the life of Saul we're going to be talking about today is how pride leads him to make this oath. An oath which was an attempt at total control. That's what pride often does to us. It makes us believe that we have to control everything and everyone around us. And so again, Saul, the army of Israel, they're at a complete disadvantage, right? They don't, so much so that in chapter 13, it says they don't even have weapons, right? They're going into their fight like this, right? Or like this, if you're Josh Butler. Um, and, 
and they're going in straight with their dukes up, no weapons, right? Only Saul and his son, Jonathan, are the only people with weapons. And so uh, earlier it talks about how Jonathan, he, he broke away from Saul and the rest of the army and he goes on this like adventure with his armor bearer. And he goes in total dependence. He's like, God, I know the circumstances. I know what we're up against, but if you are with us, it doesn't even matter. And so God goes and he, off, uh, and he works miraculously through Jonathan and the Philistine camp is in total disarray. And so that's where we pick up and Saul's like, he sees that, right? He sees the camp in confusion and disarray. And he's like, all right, now's the time. Let's go attack. But unlike his son, he doesn't go, hey, God, like, if you are with us, lead us into this battle. No, no, no. He doesn't go. There's no sort of language like that. Saul goes, hey, before we go out there, nobody's eating today. Nobody's eating today. Right? And they're probably like, do you know what we're about to go into? Like, do you know what's about to happen? And he's like, no, no, nobody's eating until my enemies are avenged. The switch in the language there. Nobody eats until my enemies are avenged. Before it was all about God and what God was doing and how much he was a rescuer. And now it's all about Saul's enemies. My enemy. Saul has lost focus of who he is, who he represents, who he's fighting for. It's become all about him. And so Jonathan doesn't hear his dad's oath and he eats and his eyes are bright. And when he hears about what his dad did, he's like, why? Doesn't even make sense. We could have really had a dominant victory, but nobody's eating. Everyone's tired. And so what we see there is Saul's grasp for control leads to a lesser victory, right? People are made to go into a fight that they should have been fed hungry. But you see, that's, if I'm being honest, when it comes to my own life, right? Saul's style of leadership there, that's part of my hall of fame of horrible leadership. I've been that. I've been that many times. One of the times was recently, many of you guys know the music for many, many years. And in my last iteration of that, I was a part of this group, right? We were like um, making just hip hop, R&B. We were fire. Anyway, um, that feels like that just goes against everything in the sermon. But you know what? There's a lesson in that. But we were killing it. And honestly, God was just like honoring it, man. He was just allowing us to use our gifts in this new, amazing way. People were seeing it. And it was, just, it was just an awesome experience. But I remember when things changed. And I take responsibility for this. This one was on me big time. I remember, I think uh, it was after we had finally got played on the radio, where that like still meant something. Um, we got played on the radio and I was like, huh, we are good. I was like, huh, how do we maximize this? And whenever somebody asks that question in regards to ministry, usually it's something bad's about to follow. And so out of that, what came was instead of like a ton of prayer and freedom of worship, it was a control of every single aspect of what we were doing, right? It became, all right, how do we pick these songs and concepts that are going to speak to this specific group of people? It became, hey, guys, we got to make sure that our performances are just on point. We got to be perfect, And it became me just trying to control every aspect. And all of a sudden, the fun and freedom went out the door. As I felt like when it came to the group, I just had to do this. 
I had to hold it like this in my palms. Otherwise, things were going to fall apart and God wouldn't show up. You see, for many of us, we're holding things like this in our life even today. We're holding on to parts of our life like this, thinking, hey, if I don't try to control every aspect of this, God, you won't show up. And basically what we're saying is, I'm on my own here. Or it's, or, or it's like, hey, I have to be perfect. And what we need to be as a people is just, uh, we need to break up with the whole concept of perfection. We need to release ourselves from that. And say, God, I don't want to hold things like this. I want to, I want to open my hands and worship and surrender, ready to receive your goodness and your grace. What parts of your life are you holding on to like this? You see, the truth of the matter is this, your glory and God's glory cannot coexist as the highest aims of your life. Not possible, not possible. And I think for me, I know when I'm in me mode, when I'm like this versus in in trust and dependence mode. There's some things that always show up. I know it looks like me just speaking very quickly, right? Just firing off judgments, getting real harsh, giving quick, not thoughtful answers. It looks like people becoming just obstacles, right? I have to figure out how to fit them into my my plan instead of seeing them as people to be known and loved and listened to. It looks like becoming just overly concerned with what everybody thinks. Any sort of feedback feels like a mm, punch to my gut. It looks like a life of more or, or, or planning that involves more strategy than prayer. It looks like even in my body, just feeling tense, right? A tenseness. And I think we experience a lot of these things because what our body's trying to tell us is, hey, like check engine light. You are unable to be the total master of your life. You are unable to do that. And you know what? I never feel good in that. I never feel at peace. I never feel like, well, I finally have it in my hands. No, that's when I feel the most starved of joy and starved of peace and starved of rest. And what it's like, is like Saul's men who were starving themselves while God put honey on the ground all around them. God wanted to feed them freely, but because Saul's oath, because of Saul's pride, he totally missed it. And that's the truth today. There's all sorts of honey on the ground that God has put around you. But if you are operating in pride, if you are operating your flesh, you're just going to miss it. And so what we want to be today is we want to be people that say, God, there's no part of my life that I'm not willing to freely surrender to you. God, I want to live in dependence on you. God, I don't want to come up with my plan and then put you as sprinkles on the top. I want to say, God, what are you doing? Speak through me, through your word. Speak me through your people. Let your spirit guide me, Lord. Show me the way to go and let me get on board with what you're doing. Are you willing to trade your plans for God's plans? Are you willing to trade your control for God's control? Are you willing to say, hey, God, I surrender myself to your care? You know, your father loves you. 
He wants to care for you. And what we need to do is release our grip on anything and everything that dulls our sense to that truth. Surrender yourself to being in the care of your loving father. Pride will never let us do it. Pride leads to control. Saul did it. You do it. If only we had a king who would trust his father to be in control of things. Hmm. So we're going to continue now. We're going to see the last way that pride affects Saul, not just him, but the people around him. So we're going to be in chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 32 and 43. 32 says this, The people pounced on the spoils and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. And Saul had to come up with a remedy for that. I'll explain as to why. And in verse 43, it says this, Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Jonathan Shakur right there, man. That is a real deal. Um, and Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. So now we see here, what we see here is pride's effects. It extends just beyond the person that it's infected. It brings destruction to everybody around. Pride forges a path of destruction. And so again, Saul's rash vow leads to some serious, serious, serious consequences. It's not just for him. The the people, the army under his command, because they're so hungry that the minute they see some animals, they just go to town. They just eat like savages. And they eat in a way that was completely disobedient to how God had instructed them to eat. And so Saul's vow leads the people to sin. And much deeper than that, Saul's own son, Jonathan, right? When Saul learns, when they go through the process and actually learn that Jonathan had eaten. You see, Saul's not, his frame of mind, where he's at, won't allow him to actually say, hey, has God used my son in an amazing way today? No, it was, you didn't do it my way, so you must die today. He's willing to kill his very own son just because he didn't go about things his way, right? And the people ultimately come to Jonathan's rescue and he's saved. They're basically like, it goes on to say, they're like, hey, you have to go through us to get to him. Um, And Saul just backs down because he didn't want that. Um, And so what happens is Saul all around him, all around him is rubble and destruction because of what his pride does. He's incapable of seeing other people because he's so consumed with himself. I heard a a quote once that said this, pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the person who has it. They're sick, but they don't realize it. You know, one of my favorite artists of all time is a man who goes by the name of Kanye West. Wow, man, all right. Tell me how you really feel. So Kanye, you know, been a fan for a long time. And recently there was a documentary that came out on Netflix about his life and his rise to stardom and all all of that. And um, it was just interesting. um, A couple of things that you could kind of glean from watching the documentary. One of the things was this, like growing up, you see Kanye with childhood friends and they're just like all in it together. They're like 
grinding, trying to become, you know, trying to get him known because he was just supremely and is supremely talented. And you just see like how they're all around, how they're bumming it together, slumming it together, just trying to make it. You see his mom there and she's just like the sweetest woman ever. And you just see how the dynamics change when he starts to reach some start, like some success, right? Because the people who were in, were in it with him, right, from the very beginning when they could barely afford a meal, right, all of a sudden they get pushed to the outer boundaries. All of a sudden there's a lot of animosity between them because one of the, like on one end, he's like, ah, I'm too rich to be around you guys. You guys are broke. And on the other end, it's like, dude, don't, don't forget where you came from, right? And so you see how pride and just the road to success separates their friendship. And then beyond that, what's more tragic is what happened to his mom. Because Kanye's mom follows him to Hollywood when he moves there to, you know, live the Hollywood Calabasas life. And she follows him there. And what happens is what I heard in like an old proverb or quote once that said, you know, when wealth comes, the columns of our house start to look crooked. And so for her, it came to her body, right? And she was like, oh, like, I, I want to get this cosmetic surgery done. And she does that. And ultimately, she dies on the operating table. And you just see how the road to success was littered with many corpses in its, in its wake, was littered with many brokenness in its wake for him. And I'm not speculating on his life, on if that was connected. He actually said years later, you know what? I really wish my mom never moved with me to Hollywood. I wish I could have protected her from that. And here's the thing. The, 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 the thing about pride and what it does to us often is years later, we realize, right? It makes us kind of like regretful historians, we look back and say, I wish I would have said this, or I wish I would have done this, or I wish I wouldn't have, uh, uh, may, uh, I wouldn't have allowed that friendship to totally disintegrate. And I don't want you to have to live like that. I encourage you to ask yourself this question today. Who is being sacrificed on your pursuit of yourself? Who is being sacrificed on your pursuit of whatever your idol is? Who is being sacrificed on the idol, to the idol of your pride? For many of us, what happens is this pursuit of happiness, this pursuit of ourselves, it basically says, I have to get this, whatever the cost may be. When we don't see the ways that we may be hurting the people around us, pride doesn't give us vision for that. Pride doesn't allow us to stand inside of our harm, the harm we've committed, and look out and say, hey, I might be hurting someone. Can't do that. Blinded to it, as Saul was blinded, when it came to his son, it always says, hey, the blame belongs on someone else. They were toxic. They didn't catch the vision. They weren't moving quick enough. It always points out when really, if we can acknowledge that we're sinners, we probably contributed to whatever the mess is, right? We probably played a part as well. But when you're in that frame of mind, it's hard to admit it. It feels like your identity is hanging on by a thread. And if you admit you're wrong, there's no way you'll be able to continue. If you admit that, hey, I, 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 I've been wrong and maybe I need forgiveness, it just feels like too much. It feels like too much to go to God and confess the ways you may have sinned against someone. 
we go into self-protection mode. That's what pride does. It leads to division and disunity and disintegration and ultimately destruction. Saul did it. You do it too. If only we had a king, a humble king, who, was, who would be willing to let death come to him before pride ever did. If only we had a king who said, I'm not willing to, I, I, I don't need to exalt myself. I just want to do the will of my father in heaven. A king not built on pride. You see, here's the thing, guys. Right? We've come to believe it with our homes or our possessions or our degrees or the letters behind our name or our crypto. You know you can't trust that if you have that. Uh, all these things, our money in our account, we've come to say, hey, this is going to be what saves us. But none of those things can save us. We need a humble king that can show us the good life, what life is really all about. Who will save us from the power of our very own self. We need a king like that. And church, do you know what the good news is? We have a king like that. We have a king exactly like that. His name is Jesus. We worship the humble king. The king who emptied himself in complete humility. Acted faithfully going to the cross for prideful sinners like you and I. The king that washed the feet of the very person who would betray him. The king that would look out at the people who put him up on that cross and say, Father, forgive him. Forgive them. The king that has held people, not by coercion, not by force, but by love. And he has held them better than any other king has ever held people before. Since. You know, the apostle Paul, he said it so beautifully when he wrote this to the church, Philippi, he said this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven, on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen? That's the king that we need. King better than pride. A king better than our own egos. We have the better king, the humble king, Jesus. Amen? And so now we come to the table of this humble king. We come remembering what we've received from him. Come remembering that in his body given, in his bloodshed, right, that he, in going to the cross for you and I, was not thinking of himself, but he was faithfully following the will of his Father. And on that cross, we are free. We received freedom from the power of our sin. 
the power of a sin-like pride which has plagued humanity from the very beginning. We receive the freedom that comes from Him and Him alone. And so today, as we come to the table, remember what you've received. Remember how much you've received because you have a humble king. Thought of you, thought of each one of us as he went faithfully to the cross. And so I'm going to pray and close this out. And after I'm finished praying, we'll go into a time of worship. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come and receive today. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word today, Lord. God, allow it not to go in one ear, come out the other, but allow it to be received deeply, deeply within our persons, God, within our hearts, Lord. Allow every action that we do to be done in remembrance that we are children of you, that we bear your image, that we are unconditionally loved, that we don't have to prop ourselves up because we are carried by you. And so, God, I pray, Lord, we would submit every area of our life to your Lordship. God, work in us. Lead us. God, help us to release our grip on things we can't control and to trust in you more. Lead us, Lord, in your name. Amen.